I still get tangled in all this technology. I just, I belong to another world, God. Old age is telling everywhere. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Oops, sorry, Doc, sorry. Um, for Thanks, Bob. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks, Doug. Um, thank you for our life from you and for your presence through the day. Um, for those who went to Mass, um, for the gift of yourself. Um, God, I may be speaking too much for myself here. When we read the Bible, when we read your word to us, we hear about the, ma the man last week who was blind and whom you healed. And we often think that applies to blind people, people who were born blind. Sometimes the greater problem lies with us because we see so well and we think we see and as a consequence don't always see our own blindness. Good writers make us aware that's not the way things are. Jane Austen, who does not deal with God, not with you directly, she doesn't present a heroine who doesn't come to a point of realizing how blind she is in her pride. Every one of her heroines has a turn. It's one of her great gifts to us. All of the writers, Dante, Melville, Homer, all of the ones that we've read have moments of a turn, a scene, a recognition help us in our reading of these works to find ourselves, um, to have enough trust in you, enough courage to see ourselves as we are, to not pretend um, or look away, trusting um, in our faith that you can heal us, you can give us back our sight. It's particularly important now in Lent, it should be one of our ongoing concerns that Giving up things um, teaches us to see our failings, our weaknesses, what we don't see, sometimes what we don't want to see. So as we move towards the end of Lent, strengthen us in our faith. Um, people who came to you in faith were healed, uh, was the condition of their healing. Strengthen our faith that we can go to you and trust and know that in doing that we can overcome our weaknesses in ways we can't on our own. So be with us during this Lenten period. Um, Melville is an amazing writer. He shows us so much. So help us to be alert, attentive, to see. And in whatever we see, help us to put it to work on our own lives. Um, and let our reading help us to become better people. We offer Thanksgiving for Vance. It's Vance, yes? Vance and um, his recovery be with him, see him through to healing so he can resume his normal activities. And ask for a special blessing on Connie's brother Alvin. Um, 75 is not young. Our bodies don't hold up as well when we're older. Be with him. Let um, the ordeal he's going through strengthen him in his faith. Whatever he lacks in the way of faith, let this struggle <laughs> bring him, all of us, to our knees um, to turn to you. Um, 
many of us here are getting close to the end, and so it's important for us to uh, prepare to um, to turn to you more completely. Um, let your blessing be upon all the work that we do with this work. Help us to make it living in our own lives. I ask for a special prayer too for our daughter Amy who's on her way home from India. Keep her safe. See her safely here. Bless everybody here. Whatever they're holding in their hearts. Let everybody know a blessing in what you're doing with us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Doc, can you start? I've got a trigger thumb, and they just operated, and I can't use... It's really funny how important... How much you take thumbs for granted. Sorry. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, God. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm going to read the poem tonight in a moment. Before I do, I want to just take a note um, to call your attention to the board. Um, one of the things to keep in mind, um, it relates to so directly to what I've been talking about for the last several weeks, you know. Um, Melville has a, f a footnote to his own writing. He puts a footnote in. Oh, we'll, we'll get to it later. I'll read it. In which he talks about being present in exiled waters. Think about that, exiled waters. You know that when we left land, we were leaving the established order. It's the establishment. It's the world of respectability. And we're seeing a Christian world in collapse. It's, it's dying from inside. And it's not even aware that it's dying. People are going around, they're making money, they're wealthy, they're secure. They're very much like us. Um, we've all got jobs, we have houses, we don't have to worry, we're not Lazarus out in the curb. Um, so everything's okay. But everything's not okay, but because what we see is that um, all of them are living in real hypocrisies. They don't see. They just don't see. But the shift from land to sea is a shift to see what the underlying causes of that failed Christianity, what the causes are. Okay? That's clear, yeah? The sea is what's indefinite. It's not where it's not our home, it's not where we belong, it's not what's familiar to us, it's one unfamiliar, it's in, it's indefinite, it's unformed. So it can be the workings of evil, it's where Aham does his work. It can also be the workings of grace. The, the, the sea can be an image of grace, something mysterious that's without form, that we don't see very clearly, um, where God is working. So the Pequod heads out to sea. It's where we're going to learn to see what's wrong with that respectable order that, with which the book began. And at one point, Melville uses this term. I'm going to read it shortly. He used this term, exiled waters. So think about that, because waters aren't exiled, exiled waters. So we're going out into the deep already, but in some sense we're going out beyond the deep to exiled waters where those things beyond 
take place. So it's everything that's strange in our world. We, we've called it the apophatic lots of times. It's where we think we are without seeing fully where we are, something's going on. And one of, the, one of the questions I'll come to later is, are we aware of what's happening in Ishmael's life to change it? Okay, because remember in the quarter deck, he identifies with the, with the crew. He, he becomes one with Ahab in his quest. He says, my voice was the loudest there. But very gradually, we watch him um, give these reflections um, <laughs> before everybody was here, I was online with Melody, whom I miss, um, asking her how she was doing, and she was wringing her hands in her head and going, you know, I'm getting so much out of it. Can we see that face of yours? Only half a day, thanks. Good. <laughs> you know, she was wringing her head in, in sort of frustration because she said she's getting so much more out of it this time than she was last time, but every once in a while she gets to those chapters and starts going like this. And I'm sure all of you know that. I mean, there are some chapters where you just sort of wring your hands and read. But, in every, every single one of those chapters, Melville's got a purpose. He's doing something. Are we aware that something's going on in Ishmael's life even though he doesn't see it? And maybe won't until the end, okay? So we'll, we'll look at those tonight. But I want you to think about that phrase, exiled waters, exiled waters in chapter 42, we'll look at it. I put in parentheses the desert, the desert. Those of you who've been doing this for a while will remember Lear, at least I hope you will, because remember when we went to the heath, that's where everything happened. Uh, um, Lear gave up his kingdom, he gets forced on the heath, he has to face poverty. For the first time in his life, he has to do without all those things that he lived his life for, you know, they're all gone. Um, he gave up his prerogatives as king, his responsibilities, and his daughters took it over, and what they're doing is miserable. The heath is that place where um, we learn to meet ourselves. And remember when we did that, I referred us back to Boethius because remember Boethius's image was of a circle. At the center of that circle, it's a still point, it never moves. But it touches, it relates to every point on the circumference. That was Boethius's still point. He said, that's where God is, still quiet. The closer you get to the circumference, the faster you're moving, the more under the control you are of fates. Dark powers, whatever's going on. You're competing with people. You're trying to get ahead. You're proud. You don't want to be left behind. Remember? So, Boethius said, with God, there is no bad fortune. Whatever's going on, he's trying to do something to bring some good out of. The heath was that place where the people had to learn who they were. This is where learn, um, Lear had to learn who he was. Remember when he first went out in the storm, he said, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. That's one of the most perfect images of every one of Jane Austen's heroines, every woman, every man, because it's an expression of how quick we are to judge other peoples and find fault with them without seeing our own faults. That very often we criticize others and put, see them in a blackened way without realizing we haven't loved them the way they, we should. And if we had loved them better, they may have been different. But our tendency is to judge others. We all, we all know that. Priests keep bringing this up. I mean, it's, it's a perennial, you know, subject of homilies, that we're quick to be 
accusing or judging of other peoples without seeing the, our failures to love and the effect that our failures may have had on that other person. Um, Christ is our model, not ourselves. So, The heath was that place. The ship is that place in Moby Dick. That's where Ishmael learns to see things, and if you're aware, you can't miss this fact. Ahab wants to get back at that. That is, he's wounded, just like we are in relationships. Yeah? Somebody hurt me. I don't like it. I don't like that person. Um, Ahab's not going to let that go. But, I mean, he's, he's obsessive um, in getting back at the whale. And you know that the theology about that was introduced in the West in the 16th century in the Reformation. All nature is inherently evil. It fell. It's depraved. So e Ahab is not only showing us the causes of the faults, but he's exposing a flawed theology. What, what came into the West in the 16th century, in, principally in, in Luther and um, Calvin. Um, so while Ahab holds on to this wound, what we're watching is Ishmael is learning to... Um, learning from things. He's finding meaning everywhere. So there's a, this wonderful conflict going on between Ahab, who is single-minded in his obsession, and um, Ishmael, who's learning to see that there's meaning everywhere, so that gradually he's being freed of this quest. Right? He identified with it, it defined him, it's who he was. But if we're reading well, I think we'll see he's doing something Ahab's not. He sees a meaning in all things, and very often they have to do with whales. So we're learning to see that there's another side to Moby Dick that Ahab doesn't see. Ahab sees only a malice, an evil, a bad. He's quick to find only bad, because that's what he inherited from his religious beliefs. Is everybody clear? Stop me with questions. He finds evil in nature. Remember that malignant, intelligent thing. Uh, Ishmael is finding goodness. And in all the chapters dealing with whales that seem <laughs> endless and you know, pointless, they're not. He's teaching us to see there's something there that Ahab doesn't see. Okay? So exiled waters is that place where we meet ourselves. It's like Christ in the desert. It's where we undergo Lent, where we struggle to give up things and find out, find out who we are. And it's in that place of mystery, right? Like the heath or the desert or the ship at sea. That's where we're confronting mystery. Um, and you could put, I, I meant to put a dash up there, put the desert dash Lent because we're, that's, that's where we're that's where we are right now, okay? Let me, let me stop. I want to just call your attention to that. I want to do our poem, and then we'll start with Moby Dick. But any, any questions before? The last couple of weeks, I read a couple of poems by um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, a member of Catholic priest, 19th century who saw the wonder of God everywhere in creation. 
God's grandeur, the Holy Ghost brooding as men trod and trod and trod and trod, beat down things, and spring with things returning to life. Both of them were very, very positive. I wanted to, <laughs> to read those as we before we went out to sea. Now we're in dark waters. Tonight's... <laughs> some of you may want to leave. Tonight's going to get really dark. Really, really dark. Really dark. Mike, can you let, sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. I'm I'm sending one of Michelle's apple strudels email to you. Right away. I don't can you read the name, Mike? Is who's who's who is it? Melissa. Melissa. Melissa, we don't have a picture of you, but I, and, but I hope you can... Oh, good. Good. Melissa, are, you're the one who wrote last week? Last week? Was this the, Melissa here? Okay, because somebody, somebody wrote last week about... Anyway, Melissa, glad you're here. Glad you're here. Can you, can you hear me okay? I can't hear you. Can you say something so we know your volume's on? They are good, thanks. Good, thank you. Thanks. Okay, is everybody okay? Here's the poem, a dark, dark poem. I'm not going to go into it, you know my custom, my habit, but I want to just mention a couple of things for you to keep with you and ask you to reread it when you get home. There are two poems. I'm, I'm not going to read the second one, Mr. Pope, but I call it to your attention for this reason. Po Alexander Pope was a, um, one of the greatest poets of the 18th century. He was Catholic and crippled, hunchbacked. And everybody ran from him because they knew the, he, his tendency was to skewer people. He had no qualms about letting people know what he thought about them. And very often, the people that he was skewering turned up in his literature under another form so that people couldn't always identify them. But very often, you knew who they were referring to. So he's a poet that people tended to shy away from. So when you read it, you'll see the women in the carriage, fancy, full of decorations, they're settled, they're wealthy, but they're nervous around Pope. Most people felt nervous around him. My reason for including it, I'm not going to read it tonight, is just to remind you of the position the poet's in, because we've talked a lot about that. When the world is undergoing a major change, the poet is the one who stands trying to bring something new to us that we don't see. He gives us a language, he makes it possible for us to see things and to feel things we don't. Because the world is changing, sometimes we don't want to admit it, and very often we don't deal with it. The poet is the one who has the courage to do that. So I just present it as, just as a reminder of the position that Hawthorne, whom we haven't read yet, and Melville were in as poets. Um, if, um, if you've got the the edition that I've recommended, the Ignatius uh, Press, there's an essay in the back that was written by somebody you know that, um, that recalls a little bit of the history. People had very little good to say about Moby Dick in Melville's time. They thought it was outrageous, that it was too romantic and unbelievable and had all sorts of other things to say. 
And you know today, because of what's going on today, that most feminists and Freudians and Marxists and people like that will find Marxism and feminism and Freudism and homosexuality and edible love and, you know, they'll find those things in it. And I'm trying to argue against that position in my, in my piece, but um, I've, I've avoided sending you the piece because I didn't want to color your reading, but when, the, when we're done with Moby Dick, I'll, if you don't get this book, I'll send out that piece so you can read it. Just um, I think you might enjoy it. Um, okay, here's Alan Tate's Last Days of Alice. Just a couple of comments. He's playing on Alice in Wonderland. Alice going in the hole. Uh, I've, some of you may have read it, some of you may not, but it's a famous poem um, by Lewis Carroll. Um, there's a lot people tend to miss when they look at it. They just look at it as a f sort of fun satire. But if you look at if you read it closely, there's more going on in that poem than meets the eye. And Tate is playing off against that Alice in Wonderland piece, okay? Um, and it's a dark Alice. So when you, as I read it, keep in mind, there are qualities about this woman um, that we see because her concern is with what a mirror presents back to her. Now what is it that a mirror shows? What is it that it can't show? What a mirror can show is surfaces really clearly, but it can't show her depths. We don't know what a person's inside is like, right? So a mirror will give us back what sometimes what we would want, but it's not going to give us depths. And what we see in this Alice is how narcissistic she is, how full of herself she is, self-centered, and what that's done to her to leave her where she is. Okay, this is the dark, so we're heading into dark water, so I wanted to find a poem that would, it, it doesn't, it, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying she's another Ahab, but this is a dark figure, okay? So keep those thoughts on your mind as I read the poem, okay? Tate's Last Days of Alice. Alice grown lazy, mammoth but not fat, declines upon her lost and twilight age. Above in the dozing leaves the grinning cat quivers forever with his abstract rage. Whatever light swayed on the perilous gate forever sways, nor will the arching grass caught when the world clattered undulate in the deep suspension of the looking glass. Bright Alice, always pondering to glows the spoiled cruelty she had meant to say, gazes learnedly down her airy nose at nothing, nothing thinking all the day. Turned absent-minded by infinity, she cannot move unless her double move image, the reflected image in the mirror. The all Alice of the world's entity smashed in the anger of her hopeless love, love for herself, who as an earthly twain, a double, pouted to join her in, in a sweet one. No more the second lips to kiss in vain, the first she broke, plunged through the glass alone. Alone to the weight of impassivity, incest of spirit, theorem of desire, without will as chalky cliffs by the sea, empty as the bodiless flesh of fire. It's like she has a lust for herself. 
All space that heaven is a dayless night, a nightless day driven by perfect lust for vacancy, in which her bored eyesight stares at the drowsy cubes of human dust. We too, back to the world, shall never pass through the shattered door, a dumb, shade-harried crowd, being all infinite function, depth, and mass, without a figure, that is, a body, a mathematical shroud, hurled at the air, blessed without sin. These are the remarkable lines that I really wanted to leave you with. O God of our flesh, return us to your wrath. Let us be evil, could we enter into your grace and falter on the stony path. It would be better to be in sin, to have God angry with us, than to go indifferently through the world, as if all we cared about was that image. Um, remember, one of the things, one of the things, and we've seen it here, I'll just underline it here at this point. The question that I left you with last time was, what happens when a Christian community turns away from the sacraments? That was my final question, if you remember. What happens when you turn away from the sacramental life? When you turn away from the sacramental life, the danger is descending into a moral code, that Christianity becomes a moral code, respectability. What you do then at that point is you measure other people by their respectability, how decent they are, or how, how much they conform to outward appearances. If your husband does everything he can that way, you'll be glad with him. If your wife does it, you'll be glad with her. But if they don't, how quick will you be to criticize them because they don't measure up to those standards of decency? Is everybody following? The question isn't there. The question is, when you, when you turn away from the sacraments and you're no longer help, you no longer receive from God divine help to deal with spiritual things, how well do you deal with evil? How well does Starbucks deal with evil in this book? Stub, flask, the mates, they're the most intelligent people there. How well do they deal with evil? How well do they look at themselves? Starbucks cannot deal with evil. When you enter a respectable world and you measure everything by respectability, how, how able are you to see your own sins? How well do you deal with the sins outside of you? And I'm assuming everybody will hear, understand this quickly, if Lucifer's at issue here, how well are you dealing with him? If we're living by codes of respectability, then we're measuring people by outward appearances. Yeah? I told you it was going to get dark. God. Here, let me read something. Shortly on the reading list was Flannery O'Connor. Um, her most important novel is a novel called uh, The Violent Bared Away. It's that passage from Matthew that we read. Remember, it was the traditional reading of it, understanding of it is, remember when Christ was, when he confronted the centurion and the, the um, woman at the well, the, what was her, the, she wasn't Jewish, she was, sorry? Hmm? Samaritan, yeah, thanks. He was so overcome. He came, he told his disciples, don't go anywhere but to the house of Israel. That's why he came, to call the people back. But once he was there and the people he came for turned on him, he went to the Gentiles. And when he saw their faith, the centurion, the Samaritan woman, people like that, he was so overwhelmed that he showed him his complete love. The woman to the well knew, she said, give me that water. 
your Lord. She knew his God. How many Jews he went to knew that. She wanted him. She was so grateful for that divine help. So the violent bear it away. That they're, they're doing this great violence because their faith is so great they turn to him in times of need. And there's no barrier anymore. The way there had become in with the Jewish community. And I've told you this before. Jacques Maritain, who I think is, I think is the most important philosopher of the 20th century, Catholic, said, the, Paul, St. Paul said, the veil has fallen over the Jews. The veil had fallen over the Jews. They lost their way. And his comment was, the veil has fallen over the modern Christian. That the Christian is facing the same temptation, the same failing that the Jews faced back then. Once we become established, what kind of compromises do we make? You know, how strong is our faith there? Do we meet? Do we learn to meet ourselves in the desert? So, here's Flannery O'Connor. So I'm dealing with this question of evil. How do we face it? In The Violent Bared Away, it's about this young boy named Tarwater, whose uncle, or, uh, old Tarwater, was a prophet. And the uncle did all he could to help his grandson become a prophet, prepare him for it. And is like children. The more he pushed religion at him, the more he resented, the more he wanted to turn away and get away from his uncle. His, the, the book begins, the story begins with his uncle dying, and young Tarwater is faced with burial. And one of the black slaves comes to him and says, bury him. And young Tarwater says, I'm not going to have anything to do with that man. He hated his uncle by that time. So it's, it's a wonderful story, wonderful story. But here's what happens in the beginning of the story, and I just want to quote it just to call your attention to this. So his uncle dies. The boy doubted very much that his first mission would be to baptize a dim-witted child because he's got a, an, um, a, 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 another nephew who's not been baptized by a teacher who took him away from the old man and left young Tarwater with the task of baptizing him to be sure he gets baptized. And, and young Tarwater is not going to have anything to do with that because baptism is a superstition. You don't fool around with stuff like that. The boy doubted very much that his first mission would be to baptize a dim-witted child because the child is dim-witted. Oh no, it won't be, he said. He don't mean for me to finish up your leavings. <laughs> he has other things in mind for me. And he thought of Moses who struck water from a rock of um, Joshua, who made the sons feel, he, he goes on like that. Um, um, because if he's, um, in his mind, he wants to be something greater than what, in his pride, he wants to be something greater than what his uncle wanted for him to be a prophet. Um, I'm just going to pick out a couple of lines to illustrate this. Finally, he said in a querulous tone, just hold your horses. I already told you I would do it right. The, the black guy comes to say, bury him, one of the servants. The voice sounded like a stranger's voice. He's speaking it, his words. But the narrator says his voice sounded like a stranger's voice, as if the, as if the death had changed him instead of his great uncle. So he hears something in his tone he's never heard before. Um, I'm going to move that fence, Tarwater said. I ain't going to have any fence. I own the middle of a patch. It's his now. The voice was loud and strange and disagreeable. Inside his head, it, was, it continued. You ain't the owner. The school teacher owns it. That's a voice inside of him. He keeps getting these voices um, speaking 
and affecting his own voice. It's, we'll come to it when we do it. What is that voice inside of him? I'm trusting, I mean, maybe, maybe we're different that way. My own experience tells me, I mean, I've heard that voice a lot. Our pride speaks to us. We say things, we accuse, we do things. It's the inner voice. Um, where does that voice come from? Respectability isn't going to get to it. Because that's an outward code. How do you get to, are you following, where do you get to that inner voice? Where does it come from? If that voice has any meaning, it's the devil. It's that spirit inside of us that's proud, defiant. It's not going to do what we're asked. We're going to go at ourselves. We're going to do it. Somebody's not going to get in our way. We're going to find a fault with this person. Are you all following? Those are subtle things. They're in marriages everywhere. They're in parents everywhere. They're in us. They're in us. Pride. So what I'm trying to get at here is a code of respectability will never be able to deal with evil. It doesn't exist. So how do we deal with it? That's one of the fundamental problems at the heart of Moby Dick. Okay, we saw, put it this way, we saw the hypocrisies of the beginning, I'm assuming everybody did. Does anybody in the beginning of that story have any sense of their own failings? Coffin, Hussey, Mapple, Peleg, Bildad? Do we have any sense that they're aware of some sin inside themselves? Remember I told you that one of the things that bonded Hawthorne and Melville is the sense of what they both call the brotherhood of sin. That one of the things they did not like about the transcendentalists is because they were above sins. They thought they were righteous. They were all good. So they encouraged the self-sufficiency, looking down on others. What most drove, held on to those two was the sense that we are all in sin. How well do we see it? So in the beginning of the book, on shore, we don't see anybody. Mapple, most of all, Mapple is ready to burn in fire and condemn, kill. Remember his words. And the other people are complacent in their jobs. So we're going out to see Ahab's on this quest, and Ishmael is beginning to look at things. Okay, that's where we are. Okay, now let me stop, because I want to I wanna read from my work, and then I want to get to the book, so we're in the book tonight. But any questions about those opening comments? Mary, yeah. Well, could that voice, instead of being the voice of the devil, be the voice of God? Well, is God vindictive and proudful and... To, we'll see when we get there. I mean, it's a good question, but let me hold off and to, when we get the valent bear away. I mean, one of the things you have to ask is, is God defiant? Is God proud? Is he self-righteous? Look at Christ. I can't... Christ gets severe a lot. Well, he does. He gets severe a lot. But I don't, I don't ever hear him... It's the, it's the... What do they call it? There's a word for it. The culmination that comes towards the crucifixion. There's a word for it in, in the scripture. Christ is... It's going up. I'm not sure, but yeah. yeah. But there's no. He condemns right and left in his parables, but 
But there's a difference, I think. When, when we, Mary, it's a good question. When we get to violent bear, I was trying to pick it out to give an example of something other than Ahab because Ahab is so blatant. And I'm going to get to it in another way in a minute when we look at Fadala. Um, and I'll make the point, I think, even clearer then. You know, but, but I just wanted to give you an instance of, to drive home the point that what we lose by associating religion with respectability because there's a lot that people don't see. Remember, I've been claiming from the beginning that this work is prophetic, it's American. Melville is showing us ourselves. This is a, I think it's an amazing work. You were saying that a lot of the people on shore did not have any uh, idea of their own sin, but that's pretty much what you see in society now. You know, everybody thinks that they're perfect. Yep. Yep. God, I know it's scary. What, what is it that we're lacking that... Do we have also a moral code? Truth, Christ, the sacraments, the miraculous. I mean, all that the sacraments help us to keep in touch with. You know, that it's not just a moral code. We're not just in abs moral abstractions. I mean, presumably people who are taking the sacraments are understand that something beyond ordinary life is being given to them and it asks something of them. Um, okay, let's let's go to the let's go to the book. Um, some of the some of the important themes that we've looked at that I just want everybody to keep in mind here. Mary, thanks for this chair again. <laughs> um, at the end of the, uh, my outline, I asked some questions again. This is a passage, it's from the opening of the essay that was published in this edition. I just want to read from, the, from that essay. This is the opening paragraph, so bear with me for a minute. The schism developing between the worlds of academia and the ordinary man, a schism I take to be unhealthy, is perhaps nowhere more visible than in much of the recent criticism on Herman Melville's Moby Dick. The problem with this criticism is not that it's overly technical or scholarly or lacking in sophistication. It's actually, um, to see it goes to your point, um, the critics approaching the work in the spirit are alike in one respect. Um, um, they typically avoid dealing with the novel's disquieting transcendent elements in favor of those more empirical ones that support modern ideologies. They read to vindicate their own beliefs, not for what's there, for what is. We can detect this germ early on, and an honest re reviewer writing in the, the London Morning Chronicle says of Melville, and his work is improbable, ominous, um, and he would eventually outgrow his tendencies. His writing displays a tendency toward wild and aimless extravagance, and in Moby Dick, this tendency is present to such a melancholy degree, that's in quotes, that it's overflown and, so to speak, drowned the human interest. It's just unbelievable. So that's a fairly typical response to Moby Dick at the time it was written. 
More recently, some critics see the final vision of the work as nihilist, as attributing a fundamental chaos to the universe, or seeing it as an inscrutable mystery. That's, those are words, actually descriptions, <coughs> from the Norton Critical Edition, which is probably the most important um, edition in academia. These are intellectuals writing on it, so to get into the Norton Critical Edition means you're an established writer. One critic even sees the explosive chaotic energy at the heart of the work as a form of sexual protest, a reaction against the paralyzing bliss of female stasis. Those are her words. The editor of the Norton Critical Edition's publication sums up this modern spirit by saying of the work, the cosmos and everything in it taken as a microcosm confronts man as a compelling but insoluble problem. I could not disagree more, just not. The great irony of these approaches is that they are symptomatic of the very disorder that gave rise to the work and from which it is attempting to free itself. Melville knows exactly what's going on. He's trying to critique this world and give us a way out. The way out is Ishmael and what he brings to us. So to read Ishmael closely is to find, actually it's a way to find our way back to Dante in that epic, a Catholic worldview. What's at the heart of Moby Dick is the catastrophic effect of misreading, of a powerful intellectual figure attempting to make things mean something they do not. Ahab's great tragedy is that in believing Moby Dick to be something he is not, he's determined to kill him. Think about abortion. Our habit of trying to make things what they're not and killing it in the act of doing that. In the act of doing it, um, that in believing Moby Dick to be something he's not, he is determined to kill him. In the pursuit of that goal, he brings his ship and all the members of his crew, except Ishmael, to their disastrous end. And it leaves us with this question, why is Ishmael spared? We can take the stance that these critics say, and it's just a meaningless, insoluble mystery. Or, as you know, I'm arguing, he's a Jonah figure. This is, I mean, it's expanded, but he's a Jonah figure, and he's come back to tell us something. What does he come back to tell us? There's no postscript. There's not a postscript ad. There's not a preface. He's not saying, here's my message to you. What's the message? The book. What he's given us is this book. So if he's a Jonah figure, we're going to the, speaking to the Ninevites, that is to us, then we have to look at the book and ask, what is he giving us that's important for us to see? We've already seen the critique it on land. Now we have to see what we see at sea. And we started that last week when we went to the quarter deck when Ahab united everybody in his quest. And um, so everybody is united with him on this vengeance quest. And that's where we are out at sea. Now let me stop for a minute before we start looking at um, chapters. Any questions or comments or Melody, when I check in with you next week, I'm going to ask you how the Ishmael chapters are going. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Big surprise, big surprise. Yeah. Um, Melville is talking about Moby Dick, and he says, 
right before you started making points, and he said, so ignorant are most landsmen of such, some of the plainest and most palpable wonders of the world, that without some hints touching the plain facts, historical and otherwise, of the fishery, they might scout at Moby Dick as a monstrous fable, or still worse or more detestable, a hideous and intolerable allegory. So he's trying to make the point Moby Dick is real and he's ferocious, just like all those other whales that he's yes. yes. about. Yes, but, man, that's all we talk about are these allegories, these ways to look at what's happening in the book as something more than what they are. So I was curious what your take on that. Did I just pull a sentence out of midair and make more of it than I did? No, no, no. I mean, you're right on. Um, oh, God. I don't like doing this. Let me hold off giving you a direct answer because I want to put the affidavit together with a couple of chapters because they're addressing your question. And I'd like everybody to see how interlinked they are and, and then ask them back to your question. If you'll just be patient for a second, can you? Um, okay, let's... Any other questions? Just a reminder, I've stressed as over and over again the importance of poetry. That the poet is the one, different from the scientist, the poet is the one who can see things um, that the scientist cannot. And here, and it raises this question, I'm glad to raise this because I'm going to come back to it. How can we trust the poet? I want to, I want to push that for a second. The poet can give, I'm saying, I'm claiming, the, the poet can give us some things the scientist cannot because the scientist holds himself to, literally, to empirical facts. And I'm saying, arguing, that the poet can give us things the scientist cannot. But it raises the question, how, how can we trust the poet? Because lots of, lots of critics are going to say, these poets are in their own heads, making up their own world. It's a fantasy world. It's an escape world. Um, when you work 40 hours a week, we go to a movie to get away. We like stories because they're entertaining. So how do we try? I don't want an answer because I'm going to get to it in these chapters. But how do we trust the poet? It's 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 um, partly implied in in uh, Melody's question in the chapter she pointed us to. But I just want to emphasize again at the beginning as a part of a review: the poet is the one who's, who's who has the courage, maybe even some prophetic insights. Um, so that he can make us aware of things other people cannot. Does, does that mean all poets are good? Absolutely not. Just as in the same sense that there are lots of theologians who are bad, lots of scientists who are bad. Um, we have to learn to tell the difference between one poet and another. Um, but it, it, at least with respect to the context that, as I put it forward, he's the one who sees things and he gives us the language to help us see and feel things that we don't, particularly at a time of radical change. Um, Ishmael is the outcast. Um, so indirectly his presence is a criticism of the Protestant world. 
he can't identify with it. He says, I, you know, my, my Presbyterian brothers, when he's worshiping with Queequeg, he says, I turn idolater. When the people see him with Queequeg, they look down on him because he's associating with a man that they think is unsaved, unregenerate, unsavable, unregenerate, he's a barbarian. So the Christian world at that point looks at people in terms of the saved and the damned, and they're all among the saved. Anybody who doesn't conform to their way of things is among the damned. Um, so Ishmael is the outcast one. He's the one who is put outside. So indirectly, either he's bad, and we shouldn't listen to him, or he has something to teach us about that culture and something wrong with it. Okay. Yeah, George, go ahead. Say it again. Say, uh, if they're not in the same religion, is that why they refer to them as barbarians? I think in that age it would have been unregenerate. Okay. You know, in Calvin and Luther's world, it would. But the barbarians in the story. Yes. What are, who are they? Right. I mean, who who are the barbarians? Quick, 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 quick. And the, yeah, the natives. Okay. Right. But those outside of civilized, educated society. Remember, the first mates, everybody, it's really interesting because there's this great appeal. I don't know that we we'll have time to look at it, but um, Melda has Ishmael speak about how great democracy is. It's an it's a real, it's a powerful affirmation of democracy. And the Pequ it's important to see that the Pequod, the crew of the Pequod, consists of people from all over the world. They're, there's very few Americans, Native Americans. They're all England, Spain, France, you name it. So the ship, when it goes down at the end, I, I, don't, I don't want to answer this, when the ship goes down, we're watching an apocalyptic moment in the sense that it involves everybody, even though it's an American enterprise, because everybody wants to get to America because of the promises it holds out for people. But the mates are all educated white, and the harpooners are all native. You can call them barbarians, but cannibals or um, okay if you look at my notes if you didn't pick them up they're over there I, at the bottom of the first page you'll see my effort to to put the whole because you know one of the one of the most important things that I've um, been pressing since we began to do this work together was to learn to see things in terms of holes Actually, Catholicism means the whole, everybody, all of it. Um, to learn to see holes, because if we, if we focus too much on parts and don't see how that part relates to a larger whole, we very often don't see something. We're blind. So if you look at that, you'll see that it begins in the, in, on land, and then as they go out to sea, remember there's an opening conflict, a complication, a crisis, a denouement, and a resolution. That's a typical plot. Opening conflict, complication, crisis, denouement, resolution. Most good plots, most good stories follow that pattern because it shows people struggling with the problem, the problem coming to a crisis. It's like that moment in our family when we suddenly learned that our uncle is on drugs or our son is drinking or, you know, some, something's going on where we have to learn to face something we'd rather not face. 
And so that's, remember, all epics, in medias res, in the midst of things. We find ourselves constantly in situations where we have to face something we didn't want to face. That's the opening problem. It's been there all along. We didn't see it. It's been there all along. There's a complication. Something happens to complicate it. That's the quarter deck when Ahab calls everybody together. The crisis is, we'll see it coming in the day you want the resolution. So we're, we're, we're in the midst of a complication. Everybody now is embroiled, um, involved in that plot. And that's where we were. Um, Now, I want to go back just for a moment to um, the, the quarterdeck scene. Remember in the quarterdeck scene when Ahab calls everybody together, he says, what do you do when you spot a whale? And then he brings out the doubloon and puts it out and he tempts everybody in. And what follows is very much in the parody of a Catholic mass. Okay, I just want to read a couple of lines and then ask a question. Um, Starbuck is reluctant. He's too educated. He's too thoughtful. None of the harpooners are. They're not reflective men. None of, they're instinctive. When Queequeg threw that guy in the, the kid in the air and paddled him, that was an instinctive thing. A white guy probably wouldn't have done it. The white men are reflective. The, the harpooners are instinctive. What they do is natural. It's a different way of knowing. So he, when Starbuck resists, he wants to push him farther into it in the belief, in the hope, that he'll win Starbuck over. And he says, harky again, a little lower. All visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks, but in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth a molding of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? Now hold on. I'm going to send this to you um, during the week. St. Thomas said, there's nothing that God made that doesn't bear his stamp. His, in his intellect, his... If, so if you look at a flower, if you look at a bee, even though the bee can't use reason, there's a purpose to everything he does, which shows there's an intelligence behind his creation. Everything in creation manifests that, no matter what it is. It could be a butterfly, it could be a worm. Okay, intelligence is present there, but it's not in the creature, it's in the one who made it, the creator. So St. Thomas would say there's evidence of God everywhere, but would Thomas ever say the source of all of that is evil? Is everybody following? Because this is crucial. Thomas would never say that. He would say like Boethius, evil is a privation. God made nothing that wasn't good. Evil is turning away from it. Everything he, everything he made has his stamp. Ahab is saying, I want to get to that because the ultimate source of things is an evil reason, a malice. To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing in it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate. Be the white whale agent, the means, or be the principle, the ultimate source. I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that? Then could I do the other, since there is ever a sort of foreplay herein. 
jealousy presiding over all creations. But not my master man is even that fair play. Who's over me? He will answer to nobody except his own will. Um, and you know that in the next chapter in the sunset, um, it describes the sun going down and um, it, um, Ahab acknowledging that he's damned. And I, one of the last things that I mentioned last night is symbolically that's the sunset. That's a symbol of Ahab's light going out. From this point on, we're watching a man who's committed himself to um, an end that he believes is damnable. Okay? That's where we were. Um, now, what we see in the next few chapters, the men get drunk, and it's interesting, they all want to, they keep talking about ladies and if the waves were women and they could have drink and sex, and you know, that's all that's on their mind as they're carousing and going to sleep. In 41, we have Ishmael giving us Moby Dick. This is Ishmael now, and he says, I, Ishmael, was one of the crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs, and stronger I shouted, and more did I hammer and clench my oath. Ahab's feud was his own. Down farther in that chapter, he says, the white whale swam before, he's talking about Ahab, before him as the monomaniac incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them so they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. That intangible malignity which has been from the beginning to whose dominion even the modern Christians ascribe one half the world, which the ancient Orphites of the East reverence in their statue devil. Now hold on to this because when we get to uh, um, Fidala, I'm gonna have more to say. In the next chapter in 42, he talks about the whiteness of the whale and he talks about the way in which whiteness everywhere, like an albino or absence of color, um, very often seems to suggest some, something malevolent, something evil, an absence of something. Um, he says, remember he gives the example of the, um, the horse in Oregon and the, the smell of a, of a bison, a, the husk of it, the, the smell of a, of a skin taken from it. He said, if you come up and he doesn't even know you're coming up, just the mere scent of it will send the horse into fear. The, the assumption he's making is that that fright, that fear, is a fear of something not good. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Thank you for that. Thanks. Um, remember the example of the horse with the musk and, and his, his comment is, though neither knows where lie the nameless things of which the mystic sign gives forth such hints, yet with me as with the colt, somewhere those things must exist. Though in many of its aspects, this visible world seems formed in love, the invisible spheres were formed in fright. It's as if it's making what happened with Satan and the demons the origins of things. There's some evil that's inherent. He says, why, why should the cold act that way? No, but there thou beholdest, even in a dumb brute, the instinct of the knowledge of the demonism in the world. Though thousands of miles from Oregon still, when he smells that savage musk, 
The rending, goring bison herds are as present as the um, deserted wild foal of the prairies. It was that way for um, Ahab. Now hold on. Chapter 48. I'm going to run through these quickly, so just bear with me. I'm not going to take time. Um, it's going to get to Melanie's chapter 2. Chapter 43 in Hark. The men are carrying water to fill up the scuttlebutt. It's, it's the water fountain where all the men went for water. And um, Stubb tells Flask that there are these noises below deck. And he can't make any of them. So remember, what the, remember when we were on shore when um, Elisha said, did you see them? Did you see them? Um, and he passes it off and we were left with this spooky sense that there's something not good going on. And there are these reminders of these specters, these shadows. Um, and and um, so the question to ask, serious question, do the men on board the Pequod have any sense of evil? Not at all. Go to a company today and, and where everybody's supposed to get along and be happy. How many people in that company have any sense that evil exists in the world? If anybody steps outside of that to question it, you know it's going to happen. They're going to get fired. Yeah? Because that guy's insane. Um, um, Cabaco's response to Archie's question about the shadows, he says, tush, the bucket. He just wants to go back to work. <laughs> right? I mean, that's how work takes hold of people. Let me do my job. 44, the chart. Ahab, down below, looks at the maps, because you remember he's trying to chart out where the whale's feeding grounds are and to time things so that he can find Moby Dick. And it's interesting because for the next few chapters, we keep seeing Ahab do everything a captain should do. He's got to keep up appearances that he's doing what a captain should do because he's worried about Starbuck and a revolt. Or So Ahab's looking at the chart, mapping things out. But then we're left with this thought. Remember in the um, biographical chapter, it described Quiquig's um, home and says he lives in a um, how do you put it? Um, that's not down on any map because real places are not. Because he's, he's playing with the difference between what could be put on a map that's knowable and what can't be put on a map that's too mysterious. And remember the, the cytology. Melody, hold on to this for your question. Remember, the cytology chapter, the function of it is to show what a scientist would do with a whale. It puts it in class, and by putting it in classes, it knows exactly what it is. In so many, the whiteness of the whale, Moby Dick, all the chapters that follow that keep suggesting there's something to whales that men can't get a hold of. In the, in the, in the one that you're talking about, remember the, the captain who dismissed Moby Dick and said, oh, nothing, and then his ship is stove in. So on the one hand, we're getting maps, charts, sciences, what they do, but on the other we're getting Ishmael talking about all these strange things that happen that are verified. He, and he, he even writes an affidavit on it, Melody. So he's giving his authority, it happened. Um, in the chart um, chapter, we're, we're encouraged to see the difference between what can be put down on a chart and what cannot be put down because there's some mystical aspect of it. He says on page 249, take a, this is in chapter 44, 
Besides, when making a passage from one feeding ground to another, the sperm whales, guided by some infallible instinct, say rather secret intelligence from the deity, mostly swim in veins, as they are called, continuing their way along a given ocean line. With such undeviating exactitude, that no ship ever sailed her course by any chart with one tithe of such marvelous precision. The things that nature work with a precision that men can't approach in all their efforts with their technology, even a ship. In the affidavit, he does something similar. He, he accounts, he's relating all of these accounts of whales and the one Commodore J, remember, who blew it off and said, oh, I don't take any of this seriously. And then his ship gets <laughs> crashed by um, a sperm whale. So we know there's evidence, lots of evidence, to support that sperm whales have taken out ships. Why is Ishmael doing this? Huh? Yeah, what's going to happen at the end of the book? Either you're going to say insoluble mystery, these things don't happen. He's already prepared, I mean, he's doing everything he can to show every side of a picture, the cytology, the whiteness of the whale, Moby Dick, the, um, the um, affidavit, the chart, all of these, you know. Um, so, and I don't want to answer the question right now. He's presenting all of these things. We, I told you, I've given away the ending. I don't like doing that, but I had to do it here. Um, Peacock's going to go down. Everybody's going to go down. And, and lots of critics today are going to say insoluble mystery. Ishmael is doing everything he can to prepare us for that. He's showing us every side, every possible side. How reliable is he as a narrator? Do we trust him? Yeah, yeah. Would we trust Ahab? Ahab would be the kind of person who would say, her fault, his fault. Be quick to, to judge somebody without seeing themselves. We're watching Ishmael learn, and all that he's doing is helping us to see there's more to the world than Ahab sees. And again and again, we're, we're, we're being shown that he sees so many different aspects of it. He's teaching us to see that there's meaning in everything, including stones. <laughs> Let me stop. Melanie, does that begin to answer your question, or do, do you still have a... Yeah, or allowing for it, yeah. And it's only the beginning. I, I, I love the chapters that have come shortly after this, the, the stories about pictures of whales and stories about whales. He gives you all these stories of people telling stories about whales, and he's very, he, just, he isn't giving just two opposite extremes. He's giving us every subtle grade in between. I mean, he's helping us these subtleties of life and always by analogies. One thing relates to another. When he gets to the monkey rope line, he's going to say, all of us are tied up in monkey rope lines all the time, whether we admit it or not. I love that. I can't wait to get to that chapter. But Okay, here's 
here's where I want to get to tonight. Chapter 48 um, is the first lowering. And you know that immediately on hearing a whale sighted, Ahab comes out with the five shadows and Fadal is there. And it's shocking and yet everybody's so, so caught up in their work that they don't give it the thought they might. Um, and I, I don't want to look at that because I want to get on to um, another thing, but I, I, I want to just pass over it quickly. You know what happens in the, in the lowering. The boats get out, Starbuck boat gets to the whale, a group of whales um, fastest, and Queequeg throws his harpoon, it glances, and the whale turns over and tips the boat. And, and it's during a, um, a squall. Is that the right word? Yeah. Squall. So everything's murky. They're blinded. They can't see their way. In fact, Queequeg throws the, the harpoon in the, you know, in the squale without fully seeing what he's, um, what's there. They get swamped, and they're trying to make their way back to the boat when suddenly the Pequod is coming down on them and hits the boat and almost kills them. So it's an interesting episode for two reasons. One is Fadala surfaces. And I want, to, I want to read the description about it because it's really telling. Fadala surfaces and after the um, episode is over, Queequeg goes on, or I mean Ishmael goes on board and makes out his will. Which is <laughs> so funny. He has, he has Queequeg notarize it and, you know, um, uh, um, witness it. It's comic because he knows there's no way he's going to survive this. If this is what whalers do, there's no way he's going to survive. Um, I want to get to Fadala, but I want to, I'm going to hold that off until the end. You know that shortly after that they have their first gam. It's called the albatross and we know from his note on it that the albatross is a white bird. And the whiteness very often um, um, inspires superstitious feelings in whalers. So there's another whiteness. Um, it's called the albatross. It's also called the goni. Now, I want to turn to that just for a second because Melville's taking us into gams. This will be the first of several and um, it's important. You know that a gam is an exchange when ships meet each other and give news, particularly if one is outward bound and the other is inward bound. They give news of what's going on in um, chapter 52 of the Albatross. Um, southeastward from the Cape off the distant um, Crozettes, a good cruising ground for right whalemen, a sail boomed ahead, the Goonie Albatross by name. As she slowed her Dunai from my lofty perch at the foremast head, I had a good view. He, and Ahab immediately, first thing, he asks him, have you seen the white whale? Ship ahoy, have you seen the white whale? But as the strange captain leaning over the pallid bulwarks was in the act of putting his trumpet to his mouth, it somehow fell from his hand into the sea. It's as if the mention of white whale or Moby Dick made him tremble. Ahab doesn't want to do what's customary, which is for a captain to board the other ship. He stays there um, down a, a little bit. While in various silent ways the seamen of the Pequod were evincing their observance of this ominous incident that has seen the, the captain lose his trumpet, 
At the first mere mention of the white whale's name and another ship, Ahab for a moment paused. It almost seemed as though he would have lowered a boat to board the stranger had not the threatening wind forbade. But taking advantage of his windward position, he again seized his trumpet and knowing by her aspect that the stranger's vessel was an Antucketer and shortly bound home, he loudly hailed. So here's what he says, ahoy there, this is the Pequod, bound round the world, tell them to address all future letters to the Pacific Ocean. And this time three years, if I am not at home, tell them to address them to at that moment, the two wakes were fairly crossed and instantly then, in accordance with their singular ways, shoals of small harmless fish that for some days before had been placidly swimming by our side darted away with what seemed shuddering fins and ranged themselves fore and aft with the strangest flanks. Though in the course of his continual voyages, Ahab must often before have noticed a similar sight Yet to any monomaniac man, the various trifles capriciously carrying meanings. Swim away from me, do ye? murmured Ahab, gazing over the water. There seemed but little in the words, but the tone conveyed more of deep, helpless sadness than the insane old man had ever before evinced. He tells the ship to get up. Um, we go into the gam, and then we get to the town whose story, and I want to end. Um, we're going to get out on time. Um, What's your response to what happens here between the Pequod and the albatross? The two captains and Ahab's response and the fish. It's a premonition. Hmm? It's a premonition when the horn falls. He says there's the white whale and the guy's going to tell him the horn falls in the water. That's number one. A superstitious premonition. Yeah. And it's isolation. Hmm? Isolation. Uh, the, 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 they don't don't commingle. Ahab chooses not to participate in a gam, and then the fish even desert him. Yeah. And they go over to the wake of the other Yeah. Vessel. Yeah. That's like an omen too. Yes. Plus, I meant omen. Yes. Premonition. Omen. Yeah. 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 But it seems yeah. that even nature, you know. Um, yes. Not only what happens. Yes. By the people, but nature. Yes. Also. Yeah. How well is Ahab hearing or seeing? <laughs> Yeah. Less. And remember, just I mean, just in terms of the narrative, because I, I hope if I'm beating you over the head, you're just going to have to suffer for a while. Um, who's the one who sees all this? Ishmael. Ishmael. Yeah. We wouldn't get this except for him. Right. So whatever whatever else we say about the form of this work, the the, the work is not a the, the the action of the Moby Dick is not tragic. The story that it's about is tragic. It's about Ahab. We're only getting that through the motions, the activity of Ishmael's mind. And everything he sees says something about him and the way he, he sees the universe. Everything we're getting here is from him. He's paying attention to things. He's seeing things. We wouldn't have this stuff if he weren't recording them. So what we're watching in Ishmael is the workings of a reflective mind. Somebody who's thinking about things, looking at them, trying to find the meaning of them. While Ahab is not. He's just closed in in his world. Um, and that's why he doesn't take time to talk to the other ships and all that, because he's, he's, he's set on his mission 
And if you, I'm probably all been in that situation where you, you, you want to go get something done. Right. You know how to get it done, and somebody back here is trying to hold you up, and just, I don't have time for that. I got to go. And that's what he's doing. He's taking the whales swimming away from him versus maybe to him. Yeah. But it's also the reputation of Moby Dick already. Because he's looking for the white whale, the guy just. Yeah. He's so scared of him that he just drops his trunk. Right. So, yeah. When, as you go forward, when you, when you reach a gam, do this, just to help. Draw a circle and put all the gams on it and put Moby Dick at the center. And then ask yourself how each gam, how each ship stands with respect to that mystery. Moby Dick. Because we're not only going to see ships and communities, we're going to see ourselves. How do we stand towards a mystery in our lives? This, whatever this white whale symbolizes, whatever. And I, and I just to underscore what Mike said, to, um, I mean, you've all said it in different ways, but I, I'm grateful for the, the use of his word. Um, what happens is, is an expression of an isolation. He's allowing that quest to keep him from other people. And even the fish offer an omen that he doesn't see. I mean, the helpless pity that Ishmael uses. Ishmael's an amazing person, if you think about it. He's really a remarkable person. Um, okay, I want to get to the town hope. Yeah. Um, I just want to make a comment of something that um, happened a couple of years before. Is that okay? Yeah, cool. Um, when, when they do the first... Um, lowering. Lowering, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, he was in, he was supposed to be in the best vessel because uh, Starbuck was there, and he's supposed to be the careful one. Ahab? No, Ishmael. Ishmael is in the oh. same vessel with Starbuck, and right. he's supposed to be the careful one. And then he's the one who makes them follow, even with a squall. You know, and all those things happen. So he's starting to see things also differently. I mean, he he also goes to I don't remember who and says he's supposed to be the careful one. Is this really how? I mean, this is how careful things are supposed to be. <laughs> You know, um, yeah. so so what he had heard from other people might even not, might not even relate to what he's seeing. Yeah. Remember too, I mean, just in that context, we didn't go over it. I, I don't want to take time with it, but in the uh, forecastle chapter, when we get all the men carousing and they, they're sleeping from their drink, and some of them awake, they're going to get into a fight. Tostigo and the Spaniard are going to pull out knives, and then a squall comes up and they stop. But they're it's an image of chaos, um, but the, the description that Ishmael gives of them at the beginning of the chapter is there was a kind of nervous anxiety hanging over the crew after the quarterdeck. And I think everybody is, and then the first lowering and they see Fadala and the shadows. So underneath all of this I think is some feeling of something like a nervous anxiety or apprehensiveness because things are happening that don't usually happen on a, on a whaling voyage. Something's wrong at the very center of things here. There's an evil working here at the center of things and nobody's paying attention to it. Not even Ishmael at this point. Um, I, I just want to quickly recount the, the, uh, the town host story. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, I remember I, I, I commented on that one critic who said that um, Ishmael is trying to recount things that he couldn't have had access to, like the Ahab in his cabin and things like that. This is the townhouse story. Notice the pain that Melville takes 
to, um, to hold Ishmael accountable for what he's giving us. So this is going to be their second gam. We've seen the goni, the um, avatars, thanks. And now we're going to get the town home. The Cape of Good Hope and all the watery region round about there is much like some noted um, four corners of a great highway where you meet more travelers than in any other part. It's there they meet the town ho. In the short gam that ensued, she gave a strong news of Moby Dick. To some, the general interest in the white whale was now widely heightened by a circumstance of the town ho story, which seemed obscurely to involve with the whale a certain wondrous inverted visitation of one of those so-called judgments of God. What we're going to experience is, is I mean, you've read it so you should know, but so I'm not giving anything away. You, um, what takes place is a judgment of God that shows just the reverse of what Ahab sees. But God seems to be doing something good on behalf of somebody when Ishmael or Ahab only wants to see evil, malice. Um, this latter circumstance with his own particular accompaniments forming what may be called the secret part of the tragedy about to be narrated never reached the ears of Captain Ahab or his mates for that secret part of the story was unknown to the captain of the town hall himself. He was the private property of three confederate white seamen of that ship, one of whom it seems communicated it to Tashtigo with Romish injunctions. Now, I hinted it, I think I asked this question, but I never got to it. I'm going to raise it again, not to hold off, because I want to pull these together. The quarter deck is clearly a critique of a religion. Everything that Ahab does um, resembles a ritual. Um, and remember the language, cardinals, chalice, popish, all of that, we, I pointed it out last week. It's all language from Rome. It's not Protestant America. So it seems as if, as if Ahab, or sorry, it seems as if Melville's critique is directed at Rome. Now, this is complicated, so hold on. We know at the beginning when he says, call me Ishmael, that Ishmael is the outcast. He's outcast from Protestant New England. He has no place there. He's an outcast. He doesn't belong. And we've seen why, because that Protestant religion is in collapse. Okay? So we know that one part of the book is a critique of Protestant America. Is what happens in the quarterdeck scene a critique of Catholicism? Is he implicitly parodying, parodying the Catholic Church because of the way the ritual unfolds? Okay? Now hold that in your mind because I want to come back to it, but it's a serious question. Is that partly a critique of Catholicism? Okay? Here we learn that Ishmael gets this story from these three white men who passed it on to Tushtiga with Romish injunctions of secrecy. Um, Tushtiga gets it out in his sleep. Now, we get the story, go down a couple of pages from the opening of that chapter. Some two years prior to my first learning the events which I'm about rehearsing to you, gentlemen, the townhouse sperm whaler of Nantucketer was cruising in your Pacific. She was somewhere in the northwest of the line. One morning, um, he's going to tell this story about what happens. Um, we learn that he's telling this story as he tells it here. 
the way he did to Spanish friends while he was in um, Peru. So he says, for my humor's sake, I shall preserve the style in which I once narrated at Lima to a lounging circle of my Spanish friends. I'm presuming Spanish, or I mean Catholic, but hold on. One saint's eye smoking upon the thick um, gilt um, tiled piazza of the Golden Inn. Of those fine cavaliers, the young Dons, Pedro, Sebastian, were on the closest terms with me, and hence the interluding questions they occasionally put, and which are duly answered in time. He's going to relate the story now of, of uh, Steelkilt and Radney. I don't want to go through it. I'm trusting you already. You, you have to read the story. It's one of the most important in the book. So we know that in the exchange, um, Testigo gets the story from three male men, or men, white men, on the, uh, on the town hoe. And part of it comes out in Testigo's sleep. Oh! Sorry. No, sorry, Bob. God, I'm sorry. God, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Sorry. God, getting worse and worse. Um, so Ishmael gets it from Testigo, and it's being related to us through him as he presented it to these Spaniards. I think who are presumably Catholic. We'll see at the end. The story has to do with a man named Steelcoat, who is one of these very noble men, um, but he has that kind of nobility that he associates with somebody who's also innocent and kind of barbarian-like. Just noble, um, noble, but with no moral sense. Everything he does, he does instinctively. The ship um, takes a leak, um, apparently from a shark um, swordfish, and um, and it starts taking water, and um, they have to um, set for land. Um, the the Rad, or Radney, the, the chief mate, um, did not like um, Steelkilt. And um, Ishmael makes that clear. He says, this is a couple, this is several pages in, with the paragraph that begins now, as you will know. Now, as you will know, it's not seldom the case in this conventional world of ours, watery or otherwise, that when a person placed in command over his fellow men finds one of them to be very significantly his superior in general pride of manhood, straightway against that man he conceives an unconquerable dislike and bitterness, and if he have a chance, he will pull down and pulverize that subaltern's tower and make a little heap of dust of it. Be this conceit of mine as it may, gentlemen, of all events, Steelkilt was tall and noble animal with a head like a Roman, flowing golden beard. He goes on. This is um, the fundamental issue um, of the Iliad, for those of you who remember. Because what was at issue in the Iliad was Achilles, who was this extraordinary hero the Greeks could not have done without him, and Agamemnon, his king. Achilles was gifted by nature. Um, Agamemnon had his power by convention. He was a king. What starts that book is the um, conflict between those two men. And I'm trusting everybody's had this moment. What do you do when you're in a workplace and there's somebody who's got more talent than the supervisor? And the supervisor is lording it over people. And the person he's not going to like, man or woman, is someone more gifted than himself. So that's the situation we've got here. It's one we all know, the, the pride we take at taking orders from somebody who is 
not as good as we'd like them to be. The ship is taking water and um, Steelkilt is having fun at his first mate's, um, at his, what's the word, huh? Expense. Expense, thanks. And the mate gets mad at him and tells him um, to mop up. And um, Stuka refuses. He says he won't do it. Um, and when, um, when the first mate hears that response, he has a hammer in his hand and he approaches Steel Kilt with it and it gets close to his nose and Suko says, you touch me with that and I'll kill you. Um, in 303 on my um, book, it's therefore in his ordinary tone. To this, Radney replied with an oath in most domineering and outrageous manner, unconditionally reiterating his command, meanwhile advancing upon the still-seated lake men with an uplifted Cooper's club hammer, which he had snatched from a cast nearby. Heated and irritated as he was by his spasmodic toil, um, he gets close to him. There's probably a little bit of shift in it, but at last it hits him and um, still, Stukilt says, Mr. Radney, I will not obey you. Take that hammer away or look to yourself. And he hits him and um, floors him. That's the beginning of a mutiny because two of the, what are called cannelliers, men who have served on the canal, who are generally more noble than other soldiers. There's a nobility to them, but they're also more barbarian. They come to his aid and a mutiny um, takes place. The captain persuades the men to come out. They do, he puts them on below and slowly, day by day, as the captain refuses to feed them, the men give over, individuals by individuals, until there's only a few left. It comes down to three and um, the, um, the, the three seem to be together in being willing to hold out and then agree on a plot to open the hatch and then rush out and again take control of the ship. They sleep on it, but the two men with Steel Kilt are really, um, really oppose him and agree together that when they do, um, um, they'll give themselves over to the captain thinking they'll get a reprieve. So they tie him up and bound him and turn them over to the captain. Um, and what happens then, um, shows how steely this conflict becomes. Um, on page 310 of my book, um, the captain says, for you guys, no more. Um, my wrist is sprained with you, he said, but there is still rope enough left for you, my fine bantam, that wouldn't give up. Take that gag from his mouth and let us hear what he can say for himself. For a moment, the exhausted mutineer made a tremulous motion of his cramped jaws and then painfully twisting around his head said in a sort of hiss, what I say is this and mind it well, if you flog me, I murder you. The captain starts to do it, then he hisses again and whispers some and the captain is so frightened that he pulls back. He won't do it. Radney sees it and he comes out and he's gonna do it um, himself. And um, when he does, Steelkilt hisses at him, Radney hesitates for a moment, and then he whips him. This is the punishment that men would have received um, then. So, um, 
everything's he's been punished now so everything seems returned to normal what happens then is that Steelkilt watches Radney's on watch and plans to kill him on a night of watch when nobody's around so he starts weaving a rope together in which he's going to put a ball and use it to hit him so that he will be thrown overboard and die that's his plan but then suddenly Moby Dick is sighted this is 313 in my book Gentlemen, a fool saved the would-be murderer from the bloody deed he had planned, yet complete revenge he had, and without being the avenger, for by a mysterious fatality heaven itself seemed to step in to take out of his hands into its own the damning thing he would have done. Moby Dick appears, they set out for him, um, Ratney is thrown into the water, and uh, Moby Dick takes him with his jaws and goes down, he's dead. So the way that, and all the men look at it this way, they knew that a vengeance would come. So given the superstitious, superstitiousness they're given to, they look at this as an omen, as if heaven had stepped in to save Stilco. Um, and what happens after that is the, the, the ship goes to an island. It, the captain, um, Stilco, is set free and with more men because they have revolted now take off with him to go to Tahiti I think if I remember and the captain is left with a small handful of men he gets into a boat and sets out too Steelkilt meets him out in the ocean and makes him vow to have nothing to do with him for six days and goes when he gets there he gets on another ship and is set free now here's how it ends at the very end of the town of story chapter are you through, said Don Sebastian quietly, that is in disbelief. I am, Don, then entreat me. Tell me if the um, best of your own convictions is your story is in substance really true. It is so passingly wonderful. Did you get it from an unquestionable source? Bear with me if I seem um, depressed. Um, is there a copy of the Holy Evangelist in the Golden Inn, gentlemen? Because he wants Ishmael to, to swear on a Bible. They see a priest below the priest is mentioned. Okay. And then he goes to get the priest and brings the priest to him, and, and this is how it ends. This is the priest. He brings you the evangelist, said Don Sebastian gravely, returning with a tall and solemn figure. Let me remove my hat, now venerable priest, further into the light and hold the holy book before me that I may touch it. So help me heaven and on my honor, the story I've told you, gentlemen, is in substance in its great terms, true. I know it to be true. It happened on this ball, on this earth. I trod the ship, I knew the crew, I have seen and talked with Steel Kilt since the death of Ratney. By the way, just for your information, this Steel Kilt Ratney story is the basis of um, Melville's small novel, Billy Budd, because what happens in Billy, Billy is Steel Kilt. He's a noble, innocent soul, the mate is envious of him. I don't want to, because we may read it, but, but it went on to become his second greatest work. But let me stop here. Um, why is Ishmael telling us this story? I mean, obviously it happened. But in terms of the whole story, the form of the story, what's happening here? How does this color the way we look at things? Well, Moby Dick here kind of saved the day. It was, right. it was not some evil force. Right. Right. It was a set of circumstances. It wasn't town hall loosely based on what the whole book was based on, which was the sinking of the Essex, by the way. I don't know. I mean, that, that wouldn't have been, yeah. But I mean, in, in the town hall, it was, it's similar in the way they escaped to the 
island By the way, uh, Melville wrote several long novels before this, Umu and some others, and um, they're all adventure stories of whaling, things like this. And and Melville himself, in his own life, mutinied and escaped, and so he's writing from experiences he actually... This It's not based on... Act, he's telling a story here and is concerned with the story, but he knows all of this stuff first happened. Any thoughts on this townhouse story and its importance? And the whole question of Catholicism. Remember in the, in the quarter deck, there's a parody of the Catholic Church. It, it seems to be a critique of the religious world because Ahab is using things that priests use or religious people use to get these people together. And it's unholy. It's unholy. Remember, he turns the, the, the spheres upside down and treats them as chalices. And the language is the language of the Catholic Church rite, the Mass. Here you get Ishmael talking to two Spaniards, I think are Catholic. They go to get a priest so he can swear on a Bible. Any thoughts about the importance of this for the way in which Melville is looking at religion and treating it? Chuck, are you there? Melody. Melody. You got any thoughts on this? I think you've picked on me enough today. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm going to pick on you more. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know and I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Because, I mean, I, he's got the Bible out, but I'm not sure how all that relates to Catholicism. Yeah. I, I'm not either. <laughs> just, to me, it's a good question. It's just a strange situation where he puts all this, you know? He goes all the way to Lima, Peru to tell this story. I mean, why? I think he's a whaler. I mean, he's at sea. He's just, you know, and he's... He's just reflecting back. Yeah, he is. This is a reflection back, yeah. Yeah. This is a couple of years after this took place, yeah. Right, yeah. but he could have chosen any place to tell this story, but he chose that place. It's just an interesting choice. He talks about Peru a lot. Yeah, he does. There's the one in the crew who is a cholo. Which and then the way they run into it, the other game, maybe that's too far ahead. Were they running to Gabriel? Yeah. Remember, too, it's interesting, because I, 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 we didn't, there's so much here, and we're just not going to have time, but when he's describing the Canellers, the cannel men who, who are noted for their um, nobility, but something barbaric in them, you know, that yeah. they, they have this um, attractive physique, but they lack some sense. And so the, the two men, the two cantlers, come down to um, Stukilt's uh, aid. When, he did, when, he's, when Ishmael's telling the story and the two Spaniards are doubting, um, um, we, get, we get a sense, they're in Peru, and we know from the story itself, from the cantlers, that um, Ish the way Ishmael puts it is that, how does he put it, that um, good men like the canellers, the men from the canals, tend to be around, and he, he names these sort of respectable settings, but sinners all have churches around them, and um, so he's, it's interesting that he seems In his sympathies, he seems to come down on the side of sinners 
that there's something there important to look at and Peru is described as notorious for its corruption it's one of the most prevalent, I mean he's presented as one of the most corrupt places in the world um, and yet he's attracted there or seems to be some attraction on Ishmael's part for these places in which sin is acknowledged it's not hidden or buried or covered up or You don't have to go past America today. Um, okay, one last question, then we're going to start or stop. Fadala. Who is he? What is he? Why? Remember when Elisha um, stopped Ishmael and Quiquig when they were boarding and said, Did you see them? Did you see them? Um, find them, find them if you can. There's a sense of something ominous in those words, and we're left with a sense that there's something ominous. So while Ishmael and Queequeg are signing up on a whaling voyage, and Queequeg and Peleg look at it as a money earner, that's all, we are giving these strange omens, hints that something's wrong. At the first lowering, we see that one of the shadows was Fadala, and he's described as from the east, um, where is it? Oh, I don't have it. It didn't. Holy cow. Holy cow. It's from the east. Right. And the cap. Right. The captain should not lower. But that's how determined Ahab is that he lowers with Fadala, with Fadala um, leading. What's Fadala's significance at this point? Or let me put it more pointedly. I, I, I got it. Um, he's described as Eastern. He belongs to these Eastern cults. He, came, he comes from those cultures that practice devil worship. He's associated with fire, devil worship. Um, in those sacrifices, they tend to be um, black masses. What do you call them, black masses? The antichrist or diabolical kinds of masses wait wait once where, where there are blood sacrifices so what happens in those um, masses is that there are inversions of what goes on in the Catholic mass so instead of worshiping a God who gave his life and offered his blood for men they take blood from sacrifices um, Bob go ahead that's why Ahab brought these people on right that's why he brought him on the ship so that he would have a different view of it and more power to catch a whale Soul to soul. Hmm? I guess. Yeah. Uh, that would right. be a sense of it. was yes. a foreshadowing of the whole catastrophe. Because originally they were all talking about it. You couldn't even get on a ship unless you were a Christian or a Protestant or something. But you couldn't even get on it. And all of a sudden, here's this. He brings out these people. Yeah. So the whole thing was set yeah. up. To be and, the, and the comic prelude to that, remember, is when Ishmael brings Queequeg to sign board and Peleg and Bildad want nothing to do with him because he's a barbarian, a cannibal. And then Ishmael, or Quiquik shows him how he can throw the harpoon and, and Bildad goes to sign him up, sign him up. Anybody else? What, what is... Fidal is a character in, in his own right. What is he an image of in the story? Pip is... We need to talk about Pip pretty directly here. Next time we will, but... What is Fadala image as a person? 
Hmm? I think it's just double. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> the, the, the dark side. Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, Ahab definitely trusts them because he goes in the boat with them. Yeah, but he was the one, again. He's the one that brought him on ship, so he's gonna ride with them. He's using. Right. He he doesn't think that his crew can actually get Moby Dick, so he brings these people on, whether it's religion or what. But he brought those on, and then he's riding with them, so that he can actually conquer, get his mission accomplished. Remember, Ahab's quest is partly metaphysical, spiritual. Mm -hmm. He believes he's going after something demonic. I think, in terms of the allegory of the story, Fadala is an image of what's at the center of Ahab's soul. And hold on to this if you can for a second, okay? In a world of respectability, which is the world of Moby Dick, I mean, that's the world that's being critiqued. If we ever get there together, we'll see it in Faulkner as well, but that's later. But in a world of respectability, how do you image evil in a respectable man? The ship owners, everybody around looks at Ahab as this noble man, respectable. He's got a history of success. He's got a dignity. He, um, he enforces it when he gets them in. But is that all that there is to him? He's fighting in what his mind is an ultimate source of things. I think Fadala is a character is in, a, in his own right, but I also think he's an image of what's at the center of Ahab's soul. And it has to be image, it has to be given an image to see it. How do you do that with a man that's known in respectable circles as a captain of a ship, a successful captain, you know, all those things. So what we're looking at here is real evil. Real evil. Is she, should, you gonna take the chair? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Doc. As he said, be also about himself by climb down on the side and step down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a direct reference. Is everybody following? So, what looked innocent when we began, it was a ship going out to sea on, a, on an entrepreneur, a business venture in America, a business venture. Because remember, everybody's going to die. This is a business adventure. This is America. It's an image of the modern entrepreneurial enterprise. It's a ship going out to sea to master nature for the sake of rewards. But at the heart of it is something sinister. Okay, so um, it's getting darker and darker. I hope that's clear. Good. Any questions? No, excellent. This is getting, I mean, what, it, you, we, let's see, who did we do this? Oh, it was Othello. We did it with Othello. Yeah, we did together looking at the commercial regime. Remember, if you, those of you who are with me then, with Othello, remember Iago is an image of something that surfaces in the commercial republic. Shakespeare doesn't show an Iago in any other play. The evil there is profound. We're getting this from Melville, an American in our time, I mean, con somewhat contemporary to us. What he's showing is that underneath the commercial republic is this particularly inherited from the Reformation going forward. Okay. So here's my question. Is there a grace? Is there a grace that can answer this evil? If it is, where is it? Okay. Let me stop on that. Okay. 
see you guys next week. And then after, after that week. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, Easter's coming. Mm-hmm. Do you guys want to meet next week? Is next week okay? I know, Doc. It's, it's, it's another week, right? Yeah. But next week, is everybody okay? Next week, so. So next week we'll meet. Think about what you want to do the following week and Holy Week. And I'll ask you next week, okay? But just look at your schedules now so that we know what we're doing going ahead, okay? And so what chapter, chapter should we read for next time? Oh, I can't, I've been... I'm, I'm trying to move by 20 chapter <laughs> increments. <laughs>